Welcome back to another episode of Freewheeling. I'm your host, Abby Mickey. Today's a little bit of a different episode. We don't have any news to talk about, really. Nothing that we didn't already dive into in the regular podcast, other than the fact that Mitchelson Scott has a new sponsor, but um, been talked about in Daily News Digest. If you don't get that or the news cycle, which is personally my favorite podcast by Cycling Tips, news just like boom. This week's episode is brought to you by Synchros. The Synchros ethos is to continually challenge what exists, spot a problem, and fix it. That stretches all the way back to the company's founding in a crowded garage in 1986. Today, the Synchros provides components to top athletes across every discipline. Synchros athletes have won world championships, Olympic gold medals, and worn the leader's jersey in every Grand Tour. At its heart, Synchros is not a mountain bike company or a road bike company or even a bicycle company. It's an innovation company. Thanks to Synchros for sponsoring this episode of Freewheeling. So today, since there's not a ton of news to talk about, I decided to chat with Ben Day about a recent study that was done having to do with who trains harder, men or women. And Matt Deneef did a really awesome write-up on Cycling Tips, if you want to check it out, about who trains harder. Basically, the results of the study were that women and men train completely differently. So it isn't really about who trains harder or what. Um, but kind of to discuss it from a pro's point of view, I brought in an expert, and that is Tuoms Squange, the Latvian writer for Track Segafredo. So he's he's here, got a male pro on the podcast for a change. Hi. Well, I mean, you brought in one-sided expert. I brought in a one-sided expert, correct. Luckily, you got Ben, who's a both-sided expert. I did, yeah, so later in the podcast, Tom's is just here to do the intro with me, and also I have questions for him, but I did bring in Ben, and Ben and I talk a lot about not only training men versus women, because Ben trains some of the best women in the sport, and he's a coach for Mitchelton Scott's men's team, so he does do both at the very, very top level. Um, but me and him also talked about like the racing calendar coming up and what that might mean for racing and stuff like that. But I wanted to talk to you because um, I wanted to see, like, you lived with me when we were training together. And I obviously live with you. So what were your kind of observations as far as the differences that we would be training? I mean, I think Ben will probably explain it a lot better than I do. But uh, as they say, you got to train for what you race. So obviously the men train a lot longer. Uh, hours just because our races are longer and uh, which means that obviously the intensity is not as high as for the women uh, because the women race shorter and harder like compared to uh, the effort that they can push that we can push so our training rides are definitely a lot longer and uh, just more sustained effort than uh, than women do you see the style of men's racing adapting to be kind of more the model of women's racing at any time? Or do you think because of the control that teams have in men's racing, it's never going to be quite as sporadic and you'll never have to kind of train train the top end to react more often, I guess, is the right way to put that maybe? I think it all depends on what the racing... Um, courses continue to develop like 
For example, I think if you look at Strade, which is one of the probably shortest races we do, especially shortest one day races we do, um, then it is pretty full gas the whole day. And I think it was Vote um, Van Aert's uh, like average heart rate data from last year or the year before where it was like <laughs> not below 160 at all, which is, I mean, obviously I don't know his max heart rate, but 160, even if your max is 210, is really high up there. So, and for myself personally, I also know that Strada is a lot more intense and my average heart rate is a lot higher than any other race in the in the calendar. Whereas you, if you look at San Remo, you could finish San Remo with probably like 120 heart rate. Yeah, because there's races that are longer, but even the longer races, Ben and I touch a little bit on, for example, a tour stage where you're kind of cruising for most of the stage and the riders need to be ready to go in the last hour. But the starts are still insane. Like they still start out. I, when you were doing the tour for the very first time, I woke up really, 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 really early in the morning to watch the very, very beginning of the stages and they're like bananas. So it's not like you guys like roll off and like cruise for 150 K. It definitely depends on the day and it definitely depends on the race. Um, and the year, I mean, there's San Remo editions where the break goes the first attack or second attack and then yeah in tour stages sometimes it's two hours of <laughs> like full gas attacking because everyone know that it's a day for the breakaway and um everyone feels like they have a chance so no one wants to miss it and that's why yeah sometimes it takes two hours or sometimes it really almost goes to the <laughs> finish line and then it's actually not a breakaway day because everyone's still there and everyone's still fighting so out of curiosity, what is your training like right now, having just come off of quarantine and the races being about a, a little bit more than six weeks out kind of at this point? What's your training like and how did you have to adapt when when the quarantine hit? Obviously, the training is a lot different to where it would be normally, um, but I'm actually enjoying it. It is more intense just because usually you use the races as intensity training or sorta um, to get that fitness top end. Um, but right now, yeah, I'm doing a lot more intense stuff. I never, like, usually when I train, I would do four plus hours. And now there's actually rides that are under four hours, which is actually pretty nice because you can g get home and take a nap. But um, yeah, it is, it is definitely a bit different, a bit more intense than I would be training by myself normally. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Now to the very important and exciting part of the podcast where I talk to Ben Day. So please enter, drum roll, Ben Day. All right. So I am here with Ben Day, who is a ex-professional road bike racer, um, and now currently works for, well, Mitchelton Scott, but Manuela Funcion. I don't even know how to say it properly yet. Fundacion. Team Manuela Fundacion, as of July the 1st, I believe. Um, there you but go. yeah, Mitchelton Scott until this point. And um, you are sort of here with me, but we are in the same town talking on the phone, which is 
a little bit sad, um, but possibly similar to what many people are dealing with at the current state of crisis in the world. Correct. We are we are still in because of coronavirus, and you were just in the United States like ten days ago. So we opted for Skype, even though it probably would have been a lot better conversation face to face. Although maybe like triple the time. <laughs> I I just can't believe you made me wear my hazmat suit and my mask to this conversation. We're on the phone, Eddie. <laughs> better safe than sorry. I mean, you should know. <laughs> You're a coach on a world tour team. You should know about safety precautions. <laughs> oh, man, it's been such a, a crazy few months, uh, especially when this all first happened. Um, you know, it's like we're responding and trying to uh, react to the situation and it wasn't it didn't take very long for for us to realize that this thing is just a steamroller and to think to think back to you know a place in time in January looking ahead to the season and what was in store in the, the European racing coming up this year and to be sitting here now talking to you in June and we can't even meet up and we're living in the same town it's just it's just crazy but uh uh, fingers crossed for this season and the calendar, hopefully starting up uh, towards the end of July with um, the World Tour races starting in August. Uh, you know, we now have finally have some focus and uh, some excited excitement uh, races to get ready for, and it's been uh, sorely, sorely wanted and needed. And uh, I think we're all going to be stronger for it because there's nothing easy about slugging it out on trainers and being stuck inside and, uh, the Zwift uh, series of races and the Ruby races and the full gas races. And wow, wow, they're all so hard. So this could be a very interesting calendar. Yeah, as far as when when everything started to kind of go downhill and races started to get canceled and riders who you coach um, who were in Europe and then started go back going back to the U.S., how did it go as far as training and everything from in the beginning? Was it kind of like, oh, we'll just keep doing what we're doing and like hopefully it's only a couple of weeks? Or did you pretty much immediately stop the training and go into kind of reset mode? Or how, how has that been as far as training World Tour athletes? I really personally, like just at a human level, like I really struggled with those goalposts changing so dramatically so quickly to be honest so like like i said at first when it was just races getting cancelled here and there then that's one thing um you know my team mitchelton scott uh, i think correctly chose not to attend uh at parry nice and and they decided to for the for the welfare of our riders and our staff they made a great decision around that but then once the entire calendar got pulled and COVID became such a, a big thing that we all had to respect at that point. It was very difficult to sort of readjust to being non-goal orientated all of a sudden. Like I, I feel like everyone who's sort of working out in our profession, uh, whether, whether it's the athlete or whether it's the coaches, the directors, um, that the swanias and mechanics, like, we are very much on a, a schedule, definitely not a nine to five schedule, but more like we're getting ready for this race. You know, we're getting ready for this point, this moment at this date in time. And that's what we see at the end of the tunnel. So to have that yanked away from us and to have no certainty whatsoever about 
if we might even race again this year. And, you know, honestly, that's still the case now, isn't it? It's like we don't know if, uh, if another wave will come and, and pull the rug out from under us. Um, but th- those, those first few weeks of sort of like going through that realisation of like, uh, hold on a minute now, what part of your physiology should we be training at the moment? Because we don't know when racing is going to start again. So that took a few little moments of doing kumbayas on the, on the patio here, trying to get a bit of sunshine in my apartment here in Girona. Um, and then I was just honest with people. Um, I was just like, at this point, I'm not training you for anything specifically because I don't know when that's the, I don't, I don't know the timeline that we're working with here, but the, the only important thing is that we sort of keep things going a little bit and we look after your mental health. You know, I, I feel like, uh, especially with all of us in this profession where success results, goal oriented objective oriented people to not have that there in front of us anymore. It's like, uh, what are we doing? And so I was just trying to run with people's motivations a little bit. And in the end, what I found was to just talk to each individual person and understand what they had going around them in their community. Because, you know, as well, being in Spain here, when we got locked down, we got locked down pretty hard, hardly even allowed out of the house. So then we really had to resort to staying inside. We are doing um, Zwift sessions and full gas sessions uh, on the trainer every day. And then, uh, we, so, you know, maybe four or five times a week we'd actually meet up and, and do that together. Other times they'd, they'd go off and do their own thing. Nothing was mandatory, but there was some structure there if they wanted to attend it. And then in the afternoons uh, we'd do some uh, mental training exercises over Zoom or we'd do a strength training session at home over Zoom, things like that. So just to add some structure in the day to keep people purposeful and, and give them a reason to, to take their pyjamas off per se. Um, I admit there might have been a few days where I didn't have my pyjamas off until after midday, but uh, um, <laughs> I, 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 I took them off before I put them on again before bedtime. So that's that's, Changing that's a win. Just changed pyjamas. Exactly. Went from one pair of pyjamas to another pair of pyjamas. Mo- morning pyjamas to, to evening pyjamas. So that was good. Um, no, you know, ultimately I think the the main thing to have gotten wrong during that, that lockdown uncertain period was to have continued pushing, pushing, pushing without never having taken a break, right? So, so now we we started the season somewhat, and we have this massive uh, downtime here in the middle, like we've never experienced in cycling for uh, you know since perhaps the Second World War or something. So that completely changes the structure. But if somebody had uh, trained full time throughout throughout that whole thing and trying to have progressed their form throughout and to be ready for the racing starting at the beginning of August, they're not going to last very long. They might have started the block of racing going well, but they wouldn't have had the freshness in order to get through what now is, you know, 70 to 80% of the world's hardest races in a three-month block. So, and as it is, it's a little bit tricky because everybody's going to be coming out guns a-blazing in August but if their main objectives, be it the Tour de France or the Giro or a different race, World Championships perhaps, that's two months down the line, right? So, like, then how do you time peaks correctly in such a short period of time 
um, but to be competitive and able to really absorb those first races as well. So it's, it's sort of cool in a way that we have a different uh, puzzle to put together. Um, I think overall, like just the main thing through that period was just to look after mental health. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think the riders are getting it the last few years. Um, you know, I worked with Lachlan Morton for a, a bunch of years and, you know, he definitely gave me a few headaches over that time because I remember the first time he just disappeared for three weeks and then I he uploaded all of his training on one day and I could see that he rode from from Sydney all the way to the middle of Australia. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? But he's actually been a bit of a trailblazer and he's created a platform where the professionals are now really getting in touch again with the joy of riding and adventure rides. And we can easily fit that into a training program. They can have fun. They can do gravel rides. They can get their endurance training in and have a great experience out of it. And it's not just, you know, going out there and slogging away, doing the efforts and intervals and getting ready for the race in a very work-orientated fashion. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, this has been an interesting time. Uh, I'm looking forward to the racing coming up, and I think there's some stuff that we'll we'll learn about it. It'll be a really interesting few months, full gas in uh, August, September, October, and November. Yeah, can you give us a, any insight into like what the racing is kind of going to look like? Because right now we're going into this new style of racing, basically that it's only a three month month season, and and no one has any idea really what's going to happen as far as like riders going to which races because now things are overlapping that like riders would have bit done both if it had been spaced out like it had before there's riders that are going to be going to the cobble classics that are on on schedule to do the tour because it's the only races they have in the lead up so is there like is there anything that you can kind of point to and say oh like this is something that we will see coming out of this as far as in the racing? I, I think a few things to just sort of keeping in mind. I think especially the racing that we'll have kicking off in August. There's, there's a few races towards the end of July as well, but, um, you know, let's call that, that that beginning of August time frame. Everybody's been stuck inside or stuck where they live, um, haven't pinned the number on for so long. And they've had all this time to prepare, think about racing. There's still a lot of nervousness in the world with in regards to, to coronavirus. It's definitely not, not a done deal yet. So there's, there's going to be, I think, a lot of emotion going on as we sort of get into the racing at first. I sort of worry a little bit about those first races because I just wonder how aggressively they'll be raced in terms of like fighting for every inch on the road and stuff like that. You know, there, there could be something there that, uh, that all that emotion is sort of coming out, you know, everybody that pent up, uh, excitement or, or even trepidation. And, uh, they're all going to collide at once in the, in these first few races. And I think we're just going to need to get through that first little hump for everything to settle down and for people to feel like, okay, we're back on the road again. The show's going on again. And then I think things will settle down. But you think about such a long period of time for people to get ready for August. So there's nothing 
to stop them from getting their preparation right. So um, people have really learned about the uh, mm-hmm. positive advantages that, that uh, training on, on platforms like Zwift and, and Full Gas can give you. They haven't been ill. They're coming out of summer of training as opposed to like a European winter going into the first races in February and in March. So they're not going to be suffering from illnesses. They're not going to be suffering from injuries. So as we sort of get stepping off in August, I think we'll find a very, very high level of form and a lot of very close, um, yeah, maybe emotional racing. I don't know if that's the correct word to use, but very passionate very exciting racing passionate yeah that's it passionate racing as it as it sort of kicks off and then i i hope that we'll find like a little sense of normality to to the process again but yeah you, you stated some some really good questions there the fact that there's so many overlapping races like you can't do the tour and you can't do the giro together for example which is things that have done been done in the past like giro leading into the tour uh, the Vuelta is one of those races that actually might get set up from doing the Tour de France now. You can't do the Giro and you can't do the Classics. You know, there's all these overlaps where people have to make really clear decisions on what their calendar is going to be and there's quite a lot of sacrifices. Like There are some riders that I would normally have penciled in for uh, the Classics this year, but I also want to see them being developed in a, in a Grand Tour and therefore, uh, we're sort of setting the, the classics aside for 2020 in choosing the Grand Tour, we get future development. So we look at that for 2021 classic season, which is only six months yeah. later, right? That's that's March next yeah. year. So it is definitely a little bit different. There's more sacrifices in terms of race calendars and, and previous objectives of, of each rider being made. Um, but I think as well, as difficult as it is for all of us to accept change sometimes, uh, I think forced change will at least give us a chance to to give a different recipe a chance and we can potentially learn from that. I feel like there are things that we can learn from that, even if it's like, oh, that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's it's worth exploring. And some of the races are going to be shorter than what they have been in the past. You know, that that's another trial to see will that add to more exciting racing will that be more beneficial for uh, the 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 show that is that is cycling to to the public of the world so that kind of leads us into um like the reason that i wanted to talk to you on the podcast today because matt denif had an article wrote an article for cyclingtips.com um last week that was about a university in Amsterdam that did a bunch of research into the difference between men and women training for professional cycling. And they had one team that is a men's and a women's team. And they compiled all this data from their training logs and kind of what what they got out of it. Um, and you can read the article on Cycling Tips. We'll link it in the bio. But I wanted to chat with you about this because it's a really interesting thing right now to talk about because everybody is training really hard for the three months of racing. Um, I mean the men and the women, both of them only have three months of racing. So, um, they're both in training mode now and you train the men, some of the men on Mitchelton Scott, but you also train some of the best women in the world. So you have perspective from both of them. And I wanted to ask about what 
kind of just in a very broad sense, what are the main differences that you take into account when you're training men versus women? Yeah, I'm proud to say I am lucky enough to work with three of the recently selected for the long list American females with um, Leah Thomas, Katie Hall, and Ruth Winder. So uh, I, first up, they're all amazing athletes and it's uh, they're, they're a pleasure to work with. So I have to say straight up that they're just good people and that makes a big difference. The What I find as one of the most predominant differences between the two is that the girls are very what's the word like they're very hard working they're very they have this amazing ability to go very very deep and they once you set a, a, a training plan for them they will generally they can drive themselves into the ground in order to to get it done and i've found you know through sometimes errors on my own that if i'm not very aware of at what depth of, of fatigue they're going into that it can go too far just because they have this amazing ability to suffer. And, you know, these are some of the, the best female professional cyclists in the world. So, you know, they are of that pedigree, but they have this professionalism about them where they go out and they get their work done. And it is the, 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 the major point of the day. So if I'm not aware and not engaged with, with their sensations and how they're feeling, there's the potential there that they could push beyond the limits that we're looking for in in a training cycle. So that's that's one thing that I've, I've learned and something that I've always been very aware of in, the, in these last few years in in how to work with them just because of how compliant they are to, to, a, to a training program. Do you think, like, in general, you, have, you keep less tabs on the men because they kind of will maybe naturally not dig so deep or is it kind of do they also have this tendency to dig themselves into holes the well and this is this is really generally speaking too because of course you're always going to have outliers and people who are, are different in in each of those spectrums so but generally speaking across the board i feel like the men are generally a little bit more aware and communicative about uh I had to turn around and go home today because I really just couldn't get it done. Whereas the girls will just dig even harder and sort of go beyond the amount of damage per se that we're, that, that we're sort of looking for, that, that that training breakdown effect that we're looking for. So I, I agree with that research that they saw to a point. Um, definitely the girls, they will always work at a higher average intensity level you, you look at it in uh in race files you'll and sure that the races are shorter but on average they're always working at a high percentage of their, their threshold values they're absolute so that their maximal values are going to be lower than what the men's are but they're on average going to have a higher intensity throughout that particular um race but then i find Maybe this is where I do things perhaps a little bit differently. In the construct of the athlete's physiology, I don't always believe in a, a, a straight correlation across to race specificity. So we still have to build the athlete's physiology. And if the girls can handle a higher endurance load, 
So now we're talking 20 to, let's say, 25 hours per week, which is, you know, let's throw some comparatives on there. With the men, it'd be anywhere between 20 to 30 hours a week. So there's only maybe there's 10 to 20% difference in volume there. But the girls still benefit from having a fairly high volume as well, just in the development of the physiology. Sure, their longest races may only be three or four hours, but we still need to spend time in those longer endurance ranges in order to, to, to develop that aerobic system, which is such, such a vital component to, to racing any professional races at this level. But then when it comes to the specificity side of things, so like when we're getting ready for that, that final part of the preparation going into to peak events, at that point we will do a higher amount of time, like a higher priority of work in that sort of like slightly sub-threshold range and above-threshold range because that's where they spend a lot of time. A little bit like uh, a cross race per se, you know, like sub-threshold, over-threshold, sub-threshold, over-threshold. And part of that comes back to the way female professional cycling events are tactically raced. So they're less uh, controlled by, you know, one team, by a leaders team perhaps. And it's a uh, free-for-all free for is not the right word, but it's like, it may be a, a little bit more of an even playing field and it's not as so tactically driven and controlled in that aspect. So they have to have the ability of riding like at, at a fairly high intensity level. So like some sort of a slightly sub threshold level and then working above that. Whereas the men, they will spend more time more at the that zone one, zone two endurance level for a, a long part of the stage. Let's say it's a tour de France stage of 200 kilometers. They might spend, you know, 150 kilometers there in that final hour is when it really goes ballistic. So it's a lot more polarizing that, that aspect, whereas the, the girls spend a lot more time in that middle range. If they are going to potentially shorten some of the races for the men going into this year's um, condensed race calendar, does that change the training that the men are going to have to do for those specific races? Again, when it comes to the specific part of the approach, just before the racing, it's something to keep in mind. But I still believe in physiological development of each of the different systems of the athlete earlier on. So, like, when we're putting the cake together, the recipe together, we still have to work on each part individually before we try to combine that all together, which is ultimately your race performance. But it, it does pose a really good question because it's something that, has happened in men's cycling of late of how I'm not going to use the word dominant yet, but how amazing people like Matthew Vanderpool are, you know, like people who are, have really come from uh, cycling subsets where they're consistently racing at this sub threshold uh, level and then coming and then like sort of accelerating above it, attacking above that. I just actually saw highlights from the Amstel gold race from last year where Vanderpool, you know, pulled the whole peloton or uh, the chasing group behind him all the way to the finish line in Anstel and then, then kicked off the wheel and, and won the race, which is just unprecedented, unprecedented to win like that. And it is sort of is something for us to consider of is our days of being very polarised in terms of our approach with doing a lot of endurance training and then working the intensities in after that, is that still as effective as it always has been or is there some room for 
a little bit of a different approach where we have these athletes who are very dynamic, who just consistently work at sort of like a more of a average higher intensity level and then accelerate off that. So it's an interesting, it's, it's forcing us to review different methodologies and every athlete is different and something that we do have to be aware of that not everybody's going to respond the same. And obviously Matthew Vanderpool is super talented, but it's, it's a really interesting case study and it'll be cool to see if that's something that we can use with, with other athletes and find similar, similar gains. I wonder if that's why you success, you see successfully, I mean, obviously it's a smaller field, so it's less of, the men's professional road peloton is a lot bigger than the men who race cyclocross, but there's a lot more crossover from women who race cyclocross at the highest level and then come in and race dominantly on the, on a road team, like quote unquote, a world tour road team and are able to transfer that fitness so seamlessly into the classics and stuff. And especially the early season races. It's, yeah, it's something you see a lot more for the women than the men. Yeah, but, you know, maybe it's changing a little bit too because if you look at some of the developing riders coming out of the U.S., like a lot of the road ones being signed now are coming from mountain biking and, and young cyclocrosses too. So they're, uh, I find that, um, especially with the skills component, the fact that they can learn that early on is a, is a huge part of it and something that I think is very underrated. But yeah, there's. Uh, I feel like the off-road equivalents of the sport are, are a massive support network for for road cycling. My my final question is kind of like a very very general question that I'm just kind of curious about. Mm-hmm. So, how long does it take if you're if you're training many different parts of what makes a world tour rider a world mm-hmm. tour rider? How long in general does it take to kind of tweak everything and for it to come together for a peak event it depends how long you've worked with them and the amount of load that they've had before so let's say that you've worked with them for three years then at the rebuilding phase for the beginning of the year so let's say let's say the classics for example are are the first phase of the season i would say minimum three four four months is sort of a likely progressive time to to get everything done correctly but that's sort of like a little bit more of a a micro picture if we were to to zoom out a little bit and look at working with that athlete for the first time you have to teach them how to handle the the load that they need to be able to handle in training so that you can then do that progression three years later down the line and get the response that you need so like the very first year that i would start working with you know even uh, the first year world tour rider i find that generally by the time march and april comes around we've been working together for three or four months at that point they're on their hands and their knees because not only are they doing all this world tour racing in the middle but they're now working at uh, a much higher load in training a lot more consistent you know always on the bike always on the pedals always looking for for quality and progression there so that aerobic development essentially takes at least two to three years, if not longer. But, you know, let's say you have that time with them, you have that first two years with them where you're getting the big gains and improvement in that aerobic side of things, and then you can circle back around and start working on 
the 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 fundamental parts that actually make up the race performances. So once the aerobic system is there, it's that five percent of this sport that is anaerobic, like gives you the ability to to define yourself as a rider. So whether you can be a good guy in the breakaway, whether you can be a sprinter, whether you're going to be more of a uh, a, a mountain you know a mountain specialist where more of sort of like the Pantani type, not not so much the, the grinding aerobic steady type of the ability to, to be dynamic and, and accelerate. Those sort of things uh, probably come a little bit more inherently natural, but it's the aerobic stuff that takes a lot of years to develop. And while you're developing that stuff, the anaerobic stuff gets suppressed a lot. So ultimately two to three years, but once you have a good base pl- platform to, to work from, four to five months. Interesting. I have like a billion more questions. So I might have to have you on again in a future episode, but this was, this was awesome. Thank you so much for making the time. I am still here in the same town as you on the other end of town wearing (laughs) my quarantine onesie. When you've been in Spain for 14 days, we can hang out in person. (laughs) Sounds good to me. Safety first. (laughs) No, that's not not fun anymore, is it? Jeez. (laughs) 